This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint, and my guest today is a very distinguished Australian, Professor the Honourable George Brandis, King's Counsel, who was educated in Sydney at Lewisham at an extraordinary school which produced people like Victor Chang and Greg Sheridan and uh, High Court Judge uh, Sir Edwin McTiernan, obviously a very distinguished place. He was then educated at uh, Magdalen College, Oxford, and he uh, became a barrister and eventually a king's counsel and went into politics, becoming very soon a minister for sports and the arts and then attorney general and leader in the Senate, a really distinguished political career where he was a very key minister. He was then, when he left parliament, he became our high commissioner in London, a very important position. And now he is a professor at the Australian National University in the practice of national security. Welcome very much, Mr. Brandis. Thank you. Thank you. Great for pleasure to be with you, David. It's good to hear you again. Now, I remember, George, a few years ago, you were in opposition and you were involved uh, under the Rudd government in... Uh, a strange thing that Mr. Rudd arranged, which was a summit 2020, and it was held in 2008 and was trying to predict how Australia would be in 2020. And I remember one of their predictions was that uh, in 2020, we will be celebrating five years of being a republic. And you were appointed, if I recall correctly, to a, a, uh, a platform or a, a group uh, which was to look particularly at governance. You were one of a hundred, and I think you came out uh, and you were very much distinguished in that group of 100 people because uh, you were very different from the 99 other members of that uh, body. Do you recall that, George? I certainly do. It was, uh, it was a, um, I'll tell you, and your history is, uh, recollection of the history of it, David, is very good. So, um, Mr. Rudd decided to host this, uh, this jamboree to celebrate his own vanity, I think, really. It was a, a complete waste of time. And all the usual suspects were invited who said entirely predictable things. Um, and there were a great many of them at vast expense that came to spend the weekend at Parliament House. Brendan Nelson, who was then the leader of the opposition, um, I was the shadow attorney general, rang me up and said, look, George, I think we, we can't not have a presence there. 
um, would you mind um, being uh, one of the shadow members of the shadow cabinet who attends? So reluctantly, but to oblige Brendan, I did. Um, it was as every bit as bad and um, pointless as I'd expected it to be. But to, to come to the anecdote that, of which you remind me, um, I was uh, everybody was divided into various streams, and uh, one of the streams, as you rightly said, David, is the, called the governance stream, of which there were 100 uh, participants, chaired by Maxine McHugh, very, very briefly and fleetingly the member for Benelon. Um, so uh, the, the way it worked is people were uh, distributed a text of pens and butchers paper and uh, invited to write down all their good ideas about uh, what we should ha what should happen to Australia between 2008 and 2020. Um, and uh, in the meeting of the governance stream, uh, one of the predictably one of the issues that was um, was submitted as a good idea was that Australia should become a republic. And I do remember Maxine McHugh uh, uh, reaching this proposal and in an extraordinarily sanctimonious way um, from the chair saying, well, I'm sure there wouldn't be anyone here who would disagree with this. Uh, at which point uh, I stood up and I said, well, as a matter of fact, I disagree with it. And there was the typical sort of lefty tittering and groaning um, uh, and uh, it um, and Maxine said, "All right, George," and in, a, in a slightly patronising way. All right, George, um, uh, you're against it. Is there anyone else against it? And one of the other participants in, who had lately um, uh, stepped down as Governor General, and Sir William Dean put his hand up and said, "Look." Uh, Chair, uh, I'm not against it, but uh, I think in view of my position, I'd better abstain, which I thought showed a certain pusillanimity on the part of Sir William Dean. But in any event, uh, Maxine McHugh said, is there anyone else um, who is against this idea? And uh, the room was all but unanimously in favour, 98 in favour, one against and one abstention. Um and I thought, I thought to myself, you know, how out of touch are these people? This was 2008. It was less than a decade since the Australian people had, by a wide margin, both nationally and in every state, uh, voted uh, not to support Australia becoming a republic. But such was the conceit um, of those present that uh, the, 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 the public opinion about the matter, the reasonably recent public opinion about the matter, was a matter of complete irrelevance to them. That was extraordinary, wasn't it? Uh, George, could you tell us why you are a constitutional monarchist? Um, uh, um, David, I think the best way for me to um, explain my position is that I'm an institutional conservative. Um, I Philosophically, I'm, I regard myself as a classical liberal, but when it comes to institutions, um, uh, I am uh, very sceptical of the wisdom of change, um, particularly when those institutions have um, stood the test of time. So I take a, a, a very purely Burkean view of this. Um, in relation to the constitutional monarchy, I'm not a monarchist in the sense that I think a monarchy is necessarily the ideal form of government. The constitutional monarchy is the ideal form of government. I'm an opponent of changing the status quo because the status quo works. And also, 
because it's an acknowledgement, I think a seemly acknowledgement, of the important historical links between Australia and the United Kingdom and the Crown. So I say, see no George, need for change. A bill has been introduced into the Victorian Parliament called the Statute Law Amendment, brackets, references to the sovereign, close brackets, bill uh, 2023. And of course, it's to catch up with the fact that uh, we now have a king in, on the throne and no longer Her Late Majesty. But in doing that, they've decided to make a few extra amendments. For example, uh, when, uh, when a magistrate calls on a crowd to dissolve a procession not to go ahead, it's done no longer in the name of our sovereign lady, the Queen, it's just done in the name of our sovereign. And the words, God save the Queen, are taken off. And uh, in another, another piece of legislation, rather than referring to his Majesty's Leader of the Opposition or Her Majesty's Leader of the Opposition, it becomes just Leader of the Opposition. And I feel, we were asked to comment on this, and I feel that uh, it's not the time to be adopting the signs of a republic. This is creeping republicanism. And uh, until the Australian people, and unless the Australian people decide to change, we keep all of the references and appropriate uh, uh, comments on uh, in relation to the sovereign. We keep them all in place. Otherwise, we're practicing creeping republicanism. What do you think, George? I agree. Um, symbols are important. And the left is well aware of the importance of symbols, which is why um, having failed to secure um, the support of the Australian people for a republic a quarter of a century ago, almost, um, they're trying to attack the issue in a slightly devious uh, way by changing the symbols. Now, at one level, you might some people might say, well, these are slightly antique references. Uh, symbolism, the symbols don't make any practical difference. I understand that argument. But I nevertheless um, um, adhere to the view that symbolism is important. And there, if there is a gradual accretion of change so that the references to the crown, to the sovereign, are gradually and relentlessly written out of the law and forms and and and, and observances and ceremonies, uh, then it does change the political context in a subtle and, frankly, undemocratic way because the public have never been uh, asked to express their views about this. The last time the public was asked to express their views, they did so emphatically and it wasn't um, in favour of change. Yes. And of course, that is explained by the Republicans. They say, oh, it was because there was a dispute over what form of republic. But uh, the model which emerged from the convention was overwhelmingly supported by the elected delegates to the uh, Constitutional Convention. That was what they wanted. That was what the, the best minds in the Republican movement in Australia chose as the model. And that was the one the people rejected. I agree with you entirely. In your position as High Commissioner in London, which is a very key position in our diplomatic uh, network, you would have had the opportunity, I would have thought, of actually being seen with, uh, mixing with, uh, and seeing the Queen and uh, the late Queen and then the King. You would have been able to have seen their interest in Australia and you would have also been able to make an assessment of uh, 
what uh, what their value was as individuals in the in their positions. Would you like to make some comments about that and tell us a little about uh, the late Queen and uh, the King? Yes, indeed. I, I'm, I'm happy to, David. And as you rightly say, in the role as High Commissioner, um, I did um, have the opportunity to meet the late Majesty several times, I think five times. Two of those occasions were, were um, for quite a period of time, as a matter of fact, the initial uh, audience um, you have uh, when you present your credentials, um, which was meant, I was told, would you typically go on for about 10 minutes or so. But we got on very well, I think, and um, the, the Queen didn't bring it to an end uh, for uh, about 35 minutes, which uh, one of the courtiers afterwards told me was uh, very unusual. And then I met her briefly um, at the garden parties and events uh, at the diplomatic reception and so on. But the last time I met Her Late Majesty, which was actually the last occasion she was involved in any function with a specifically Australian connection, was um, in April 2021, when there was a ceremony to commemorate the centenary of the Royal Australian Air Force. And it was held at the RAF uh, memorial, which uh, is in Windsor, not very far from Windsor Castle. And it was the first occasion other than a balcony appearance for the previous Remembrance Day that the Queen had undertaken since the COVID pandemic, when, like everyone else, she was um, required to self-isolate, and which she did at Windsor Castle. So of all the many tens of thousands of invitations that she would have received, to do events when the lockdown came to an end. The first one she accepted was to attend the um, uh, RAAF centenary event. Um, uh, um, and I was her host and I was in her company for about 40 minutes and I showed her around the cloister, um, which is the main part of the memorial and in which in one part of the cloister, uh, there are uh, engraved the names of all these Australian airmen who died um, in the skies over Europe during the Second World War. Um, and uh, I, as we parted, it was quite touching um, because she's, um, because um, every, obviously um, the Duke of Edinburgh's um, health was on everybody's mind at the time. And in fact, he died nine days later. And then she went into a period of mourning and uh, didn't do any events for quite a while until uh, several, uh, several months later. So that was the last occasion on which I saw her, but it was also the last occasion on which she uh, um, uh, participated in a function in her capacity as the Queen of Australia. Um, I think Australians don't get how important the monarchy is to the British system. I think Australians, many Australians, particularly those who are not very familiar with the United Kingdom, take a very superficial view that it's all just a show of ceremony and it doesn't really mean very much. The the convening power and the authority uh, of the Crown is an extremely important, important part of the way the UK system of government operates. It provides a continuity and a stability uh, and a, a, a patriotic reference point so that regardless of how... Um, divisive and, and fractious British politics may be, 
uh, there is this hugely admired unifying symbol in the person of a human being who is both uh, brings the human dimension but also the the uh, traditional historical constitutional symbolic dimension to the role and is a real focus of national unity. Now, the Queen carried out that role superbly for so many years. I think His Majesty the King, who I got to know a lot better, I saw quite a lot of the, the then Prince of Wales uh, when I, I was the High Commissioner, um, uh, has learned uh, from the Master at, uh, at, his, uh, at his mother's knee, as it were, for all those years, and I think is extremely well-placed to assume the role. Now, he'll do it differently because everybody does something differently from their predecessors. But nevertheless, I think uh, King Charles gets the, the, the centrality of monarchy as an institutional foundation and as something that people can look up to as a unifying national symbol, regardless of the, the fractiousness of the political and social issues of the day. We don't have that in Australia. I mean, we have the Governor-General. Uh, the Queen, uh, well, the King now, is, of course, the King of Australia. But uh, they, there is not the front-of-mind presence in Australia of the King or, indeed, the Governor-General that there is of the King in the United Kingdom itself. George, the present government has hitched uh, a referendum on a republic to success in the voice referendum, which doesn't seem to be going very well. Uh, they've suggested that uh, there'll be a, a referendum on a republic in the next or some coming term of the, this government. How likely do you think is it that we will see a second referendum on a republic? I think it all depends on how the referendum on the voice goes. Um, if, as is looking increasingly likely, the voice referendum fails, um, I think the appetite for yet another referendum um, on the on a republic will entirely disappear, entirely disappear. If, however, the voice referendum were to succeed, I think the government will be emboldened in if it wins a second term to proceed with the republic referendum. So I think it all does depend. The republic referendum, the the, the the holding of a republic referendum, does I think depend on the fate of the voice referendum. Now, even if the voice referendum were to pass, there's no, that, that's not to say that a republic referendum would pass. Um, I'm not predicting that. But um, my, my own private view is it's looking like the voice referendum uh, will fail. Uh, I've always privately uh, expected that would happen. Um, I opined about that in a column I wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald about a year ago, in, fa in fact, that um, the initial public enthusiasm would wane uh, and uh, I think uh, the uh, if the voice referendum fails, then there won't be much talk of republicanism for many years to come. Yes, well, uh, it seems, doesn't it, uh, with referendums, and that was certainly our experience with 99, that yeah. when a referendum is first announced, there's a lot of support for it because people haven't heard all of the arguments against it because those who Correct. are opposed to it haven't had the opportunity to put their arguments but as the referendums approach, they become less popular. And uh... well, I think I think that's right. And, and the, the point I'd make, David, is this. And I, I, by the way, I mean, I was in Parliament for eighteen years. I ran, you know, a number of Senate campaigns here in Queensland. I'm not unfamiliar with 
camp, political campaigning. Um, I am astonished at how badly the advocates for yes have gone about their campaign. I mean, they have adopted this hectoring, morally bullying, sanctimonious, patronising tone, uh, and Australians don't like that. They re they are reacting against it. They're reacting against being told that if they don't vote yes, they're bad people. And unlike general elections, which are binary, you either have to vote for, at the end of the day, you have to either vote for or against the government. Referendums are not binary because there are always three constituencies in a referendum. There are the people who are sold on the, the, the desirability of change, the yes people. There are the people who are, have decided early in the piece that they're against the change, the no people. But there are also the people who are interested, who are open to be persuaded that they should vote for change, but are not quite convinced. And their default position is to vote no unless they're sure that they want the change. Mm. And I think the campaigners for the yes case have misunderstood this. They've thought that they've approached this as if it's a binary choice. Ultimately, of course, it is a binary choice, yes or no. But in the current, in, in, for the duration of the campaign, the undecideds are, they are the core market. And they're not like undecideds in an election campaign. They're people who are open to change. But unless they are persuaded, brought over the line, their default position is to vote no. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and we find that, uh, we certainly found it, that the undecided, or those who, those who say they are undecided in opinion polls, tend to move to the no case rather than to the yes case as time and, and that, proceeds. And by the way, David, isn't necessarily because they agree with the no case. Mm. Rather, it's because they've adopted the precautionary principle, and the, which is a rational choice for them. Um, it's the intelligent choice for people who are not fully persuaded as to the desirability of voting yes. And uh, I think the government has particularly exacerbated their, their problem here by by the total lack of transparency about how the voice will work. And we hear um, people like Mr Albanese and Mr Draper sort of scoff at that, the thought that there's any area of doubt. I haven't heard two ministers, whether it be poor Linda Burney, who's a, you know, obviously a very nice person but a terrible advocate, uh, or Anthony Albanese or Mark Dreyfus or any of them, I've never heard them describe how the voice will work in the same way in any interview I've ever heard. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you gave some very generous advice in the Sydney Morning Herald to the yes bit, case. My, to my, tongue, my tongue was planted firmly in my cheek, of course, <laughs> in parts of that article. <laughs> but they didn't listen to you. I, I haven't seen them take that up. In fact, uh, in my view, they should have referred this to a convention, as John Howard referred the Republic question to yeah. a convention, where you would have got some sensible conclusions. I, I think there's an enormous, and I wonder whether you agree, there's an enormous sympathy among all Australians for the Indigenous people, particularly because of the gap in the remote areas. Once they realise, as I'm sure is the case, once they realise that the voice will do absolutely nothing if it is established to closing the gap, in fact, it'll probably make it worse, like so many other reforms in this area, they'll all move to the no case. Well, I think that's 
I think that's true. And, uh, you know, the, if you look at the most vocal um, Indigenous campaigners for yes, whether it's people like Marcia Langton or Noel Pearson or, or Linda Burney herself and others, um, you know, I, I, I wonder about the extent of their connectedness with these remote communities. You were, and getting, getting away from uh, the voice for the moment, based in London, you were at the centre in many ways, I think, of where the Western Alliance works. It, London seems to operate as the world capital these days. And uh, you would have uh, been very well able to assess our position in AUKUS, for example, and in relation to the United States and the United Kingdom. Where do you see that going, that, that alliance, which has been established by the previous government? You're talking about AUKUS? Yes. Well, I think um, AUKUS will continue to be a very important part of uh, Australia's policy architecture. Um, the important thing, of course, was getting the Americans um, to agree to share what for them is really the keys to the kingdom, their best kept secret, really, the, uh, their nuclear propulsion technology, which they've only shared before with one other country, that is the United Kingdom itself, as long ago as 1958. Um, but what it does do in a broader sense, because it's about a lot more than submarines, what it does do is that it unites Australia with the United Kingdom and the United States um, in terms of long -term, our long-term strategic disposition and long-term strategic and military planning, which I think is a good thing. I mean, we are the three most important nations in the Five Eyes intelligence community, uh, with all due respect to the New Zealanders and, and indeed the Canadians, um, uh, Australia, uh, the US and the UK are really the core of the Five Eyes. And I can say that having been as the Attorney General, the Minister with responsibility for national security at the time, and therefore the Minister who represented Australia the five, in the Five Eyes ministerial meetings, um, it really does place Australia um, in a strategic sense where we have always been in a geographical sense, and that is at the fulcrum um, of um, the Eastern Hemisphere, of the, uh, the Indo-Pacific. George, how do you see us? How do you see us placed in the world today? Uh, there seem to be threats of war, particularly in uh, Taiwan. Where are we going and what is your feeling about the international situation? I think the international situation is very dire. Um, I don't subscribe to the metaphor that this is a new Cold War. I think a better historical comparison, if historical comparisons are sought, is with the 1930s, where you have uh, aggressive dictatorial authoritarian leaders making bogus, um, um, historically bogus territorial claims. <laughs> Um, and sorry about that. Um, um, and uh, um, and and pursuing those historical, uh, but historically bogus territorial claims, whether they be uh, Russia in Ukraine or China in Taiwan and in the South China Sea, um, heedless of international law and what diplomats like to refer to as the international rules-based order. Um, I think it's extremely dangerous. The, um, I think President Xi's 
um, intentions in relation to Taiwan are not to be underestimated. I'm not often given to quoting um, Kevin Rudd, but I do respect Kevin Rudd, uh, Kevin Rudd's scholarship on um, the question of China. He published a very illuminating article uh, as the lead article in the uh, November December <laughs> issue of Foreign, Foreign Affairs magazine, which is the principal um, um, organ of the um, American foreign policy community, in which he anatomised President Xi's um, ideology and the way in which Xi's ideology relates to um, uh, his um, uh, broader strategic goals uh, in a way that I think is both accurate and alarming. I'm a pessimist when it comes to um, um, the, the likelihood of uh, there being um, some belligerent um, conduct by the Chinese, frankly, an, an attempted invasion of Taiwan over the coming years. And the more I um, uh, sit in seminars and, and listen to people whose expertise in this field is greater than mine, the more that seems to be a, a consensus view, not a unanimous view, but an increasing consensus view that this is likely to happen. And Australia, of course, as um, the, the principal American um, ally in the region, uh, along with Japan and South Korea, but, you know, whether it's Australia, Japan, South Korea, all of our strategic interests align here in resisting that. And, of course, this is an area of your expertise where you're teaching at the yeah. Australian National University, so we're very fortunate to hear your views on these matters. Well, uh, as I say, there are others who have more expertise than me, but mm. you know, particularly as the High Commissioner in London at the time the AUKUS Pact was being put together, um, and uh, as uh, uh, the, uh, the Australia's uh, diplomatic leader in um, our biggest diplomatic mission in Europe, and frankly, in my view, one of our most important in the world, um, not as important as Washington, I guess not as important as Jakarta either, but um, in terms of the Western alliance, um, second only to Washington in importance. It's hard to imagine the United States accepting a, a mainland invasion of Taiwan, yeah. is it not? I, I, I agree with that. I, it, but it, of course, all depends who the president is at the time. But um, I think Biden, who has, um, you know, people have uh, a lot of critical things to say about President Biden, but I think on the question of... of um, of his firmness in relation to China and Taiwan has actually been ahead of many of those who advise him. I mean, every time he says, well, if China uh, invades Taiwan, um, we will come to Taiwan's defence, um, those around him try and walk it back to try and enshrine uh, or reassert the so-called policy of strategic ambiguity. Uh, my own view, and uh, you know, I've got a lot of respect for those who argue in, in support of the policy of strategic ambiguity, but that said, I think strategic ambiguity is becoming something of a dated policy uh, as the lack of ambiguity of China's intentions becomes more, more apparent. Mm. The much-criticised uh, Neville Chamberlain was certainly not ambiguous as to where the line would be drawn in relation to Germany, was he? No, that's no, that's 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 true. Um, but uh, you know, I, look to come back to your earlier question, David. 
I think that uh, this is the, the the level of strategic threat in the world is of a is of a, a degree that we haven't seen probably since the 1930s. I mean, even in the darkest days of the Cold War, the so-called balance of terror between uh, two nuclear powers, there was an internal logic in the um, in nuclear deterrence, which actually kept the world uh, um, on the on the precipice, admittedly, but nevertheless without a major superpower conflict for half a century. I suppose to an extent that depended a lot on uh, one's hope that the Soviet Union would be run by, they may have been uh, dictators, but that they were rational dictators and would have realised that a nuclear war would have done more damage to them, or terrible damage to the rest of the world, but something which is not a price that anybody would wish to pay. Yeah. Well, it, it is a it is a, a very interesting and awful prospect that we have, and I agree with you. We are we seem to have uh, fallen into a state where war is more likely than it would have seemed a few years ago. It's a terrible situation. Well, you know, when I was when I was in London, the chief of the general staff famously addressed um, the the latest um, batch of cadets um, of, of cadet officers. Uh, at Sandhurst, and he said, "We, you have, to, you have to stop thinking that we live in the post-war era. We live in the pre-war era." Well, that is telling indeed, isn't it? Well, you now have a, a very interesting period of your life as a teacher, and you will make major contributions there. And I hope that uh, you will occasionally allow us to interview you on the state of the world if you have the time. Well, I'd be delighted to, David, and can I congratulate you and thank you for your service of, of, of so many years and decades in uh, defence of Australia's institutions of, uh, in support of the friendship, uh, because it is a true friendship between the Australian people and the British people. Um, it has the occasional wobbles, as we saw <laughs> a few days ago at, at Lords, but nevertheless is a, is a deep and abiding friendship. Uh, and... Um, defence of the values that, that, that are so often um, ignored or, uh, or unappreciated by elements of the commentariat in both Australia and the United Kingdom, yes. uh, but which nevertheless um, are the enduring values that have made Australia the great nation that it is, and your contribution to that, and I hope in this new broadcast venture with our mutual friend Alan Jones and others, um, you, you continue to do uh, you continue to serve those causes, as I'm sure you will. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. And uh, I could only agree with you on the importance of the relationship between Australia and the United Kingdom and the United States, because this mm -hmm. uh, Anglosphere is so important and is not the ridiculous thing which uh, one particular former Labour Premier of this state declared on one occasion. It is, it is a very crucial part, I think, of... Uh, our world relations. Well, once again, thank you very much for your time. It was generous of you, and I look forward to further ones. This is uh, uh, Save the Nation on ADH-TV, and I'm David Flint. Until next time.